Welcome to Chit Chat Money. My name is Ryan Henderson, and I'm joined by my co-host, Brett Schaefer. Today is our Thursday deep dive episode where we interview an analyst to discuss a single stock. And today we have on Luis Sanchez to talk about interactive brokers. Luis is the manager at LVS Advisory, and he's an investor that we personally admire and try to emulate in a lot of ways. He's been on the show multiple times. I, I think you'll see from the, today's episode just how thorough his research is on the companies he owns. Um, but before we get to that, today's episode is presented by Stratosphere. Stratosphere is the best web-based research terminal for company-specific metrics like KPIs and segment revenues. Stratosphere has clean data for KPIs, segment data that is triple-checked for accuracy and beautiful data visualizations, helping you save time and the frustration of digging through SEC filings. We use Stratosphere for our own home screen. We used it today to research interactive brokers in preparation for this episode. You can use it too for free by going to stratosphere.io. That is stratosphere.io and the link is in our show notes. If you're more interested in Stratosphere, stick around after the episode. We did a three-minute interview with the Stratosphere founder, Braden Dennis. Uh, it's, it's worth sticking around just to check out. But without further ado, here's our interview with Luis Sanchez. Welcome to Chit Chat Money. On this show, hosts Ryan Henderson and Brett Schaefer interview industry experts and riff on the world of investing. As a quick reminder, Chit Chat Money is a CCM Media Group podcast. Ryan and Brett are also general partners at Arch Capital, and Arch Capital may have positions in the securities discussed in this podcast. Anything discussed on Chit Chat Money by Ryan or Brett or any other podcast guests is not formal advice or recommendation. Now, please enjoy this episode. Okay, today we are joined by, I want to say four-time guest now. Thank you, I think it's the third. Okay. Uh, third time guest, Luis Sanchez. Uh, if you're a regular listener, you are probably familiar with Luis's work. Um, if not, he is the managing partner at LVS Advisory. We're going to link to the website in the uh, show notes, and there's plenty of good reading there. He just released his Q4 letter if you want to get uh, a better glimpse at his overall portfolio and everything that he does. But today, we are talking about interactive brokers, um, which is probably a business that a lot of people are familiar with on the customer side, but maybe haven't looked at it uh as an investment. So why don't we just start with kind of the basics? How does IBKR make money and what's kind of enabled them to achieve uh, operating margins that are almost 50% or, or higher in some years? Yeah. Well, first, Ryan and Brett, thanks for having me again. Uh, always fun to do these. And um, yeah, I guess I'll start with the elevator pitch. And then, uh, which, and perhaps I should, I should also offer a disclaimer, which is that, um, I am long IBKR. Um, so just as a disclosure and that, um, you know, obviously I'm not providing investment advice here. I'm just giving my opinions on, on what I think, but everyone should obviously do their own research and consult a financial advisor. With that out of the way, I I do like interactive brokers quite a bit as a as a stock and as a as a long term holding. Um, I actually purchased it uh, in the, this past year, twenty twenty two, over the summer when the the shares were quite depressed along with the rest of the market. 
Although, although that being said, it's funny that I purchased it last year for the first time because I've been a customer for over 10 years. And I never really thought about buying the stock until recently. And I guess I'll get into why. What, well, yeah, what was sort of the genesis for that? What, what inspired you to go, all right, you know what? I've been using this for 10 years and never thought about it. Maybe I'll take a look at it. Yeah, well, at the, at the, at the core of what I'm looking for are high-quality businesses with long-term uh, reinvestment opportunities that are available at attractive valuations. And I think, you know, if you can combine those three basic building blocks and you're right about those three basic building blocks, uh, it tends to make good investment opportunities. And on top of that, you know, I really, really like the fine situation when where there's a lot of insider ownership and and I have a high opinion of the insiders, which I, I do in this case, right? Um I, I guess why I never why I was never really that interested in IB Care before is because I don't I've never really thought of myself as like a financials specialist. Um and I always kind of perceived IB as more of a specialist stock because the, it, it can be a little bit complicated when you want to look under the hood of, okay, well, how does like a net interest margin work and like what are the mechanics of that? And, and there's obviously complex regulatory, uh, there's a complex regulatory environment in the banking space and in the brokerage space. Um, and also, I, I guess I just never really looked at the financials. <laughs> I never really understood or I never realized how fast this company is growing in terms of the customer base, how profitable it is. And, and you know, it actually doesn't screen very well. And I can get into that too. But if you just look at, if you just look at it in like a Bloomberg terminal or a capital IQ over like a 10 or 15 year time period of financials, um, it doesn't screen well. And that's actually very misleading because the company has significantly transformed its business model since uh, about 2007, 2008 to today. So it actually does take a little bit of work. It took me a little bit of work to get comfortable with it and to understand it and to understand the drivers and to be able to model it. But once I did, I just kind of realized like, oh, okay, this actually is a very durable business with a lot of nice competitive advantages and good unit economics that I think has a really long runway. Um, and, you know, it has a very interesting catalyst too. So part of what got me interested in 2022 is, um, first of all, the stock was, was down a lot, right? Historically, this, is, this has also been on the more expensive side. It historically has always traded for like 25, 30 times plus. I think it's traded as high as 40 times EPS in the past. But last summer it got as cheap as 12 times. It got, you know, which is where I, I think I, I started buying it when it was 12 times EPS stock. So I think part of it was like, oh, okay, the valuation here is actually really cheap, which is interesting. The second thing was if you think about why the valuation was so cheap, a big part of it is just that, well, this is kind of correlated to the market cycle. So um, I think uh, like if you think about who makes up the customer base for a company like IBQR, which uh, I don't want to get too far ahead, but it's an electronic brokerage. So they have a really diverse customer base, but a lot of their customers are 
are retail investors, like individual traders are the largest constituent. And retail trading activity is somewhat cyclical, right? When stocks are going to the moon, like we had in 2021, trading activity was crazy. And we had GameStop and Mania, you know, we had meme stock mania, we had the COVID traders in 2020. So um, the trading activity was really high. Um, and part of the reason why this was cheap is because basically they were comping the really crazy trading activity of 2020, 2021. A lot of people viewed IBKR as like a COVID beneficiary to a degree. Um, but, uh, and, and when stocks are down, people just don't trade as much. Right. And, you know, if you look at the financial model here, um, when interest rates are low, about two thirds of the earnings power is trading commissions. However, what, what I kind of observed is that, okay, interest rates are not low. <laughs> and I looked at the financials over the past, you know, 10, 15 years. And, you know, we did have similar level of interest rates, 2006, 2007. We did have rising interest rates in 2019 or 2018, 2019. So you could actually see what happens when interest rates are rising, when they're elevated and the dynamic switches. So now in 2023, interest income, net interest income is actually gonna be two thirds of earnings or it's actually gonna be a majority. But we'll see how high it goes, but it will be a majority of earnings. And what got me excited in 2022 is like, okay, Trading activity, obviously trading activity is going to be down, but they're going to more than offset that by the amount of money they're going to make with higher interest rates. Um, and then there's this really interesting dynamic. Basically, the, the, the why now pitch is, okay, it's kind of a heads, heads I win, tails I don't lose. Because if interest rates stay high, I be curious, prints money. But if interest rates start to fall or just stop rising, well, that's going to support uh, trading activity because then stocks are probably going to have valuation support. Um, if if uh, interest rates actually start to decline, uh, you, sh you should expect stocks to probably start to increase or uh, start to appreciate again. And then you have this kind of changing dynamic where you know they're they're two their two lines of business are somewhat countercyclical to each other. But we could actually be in a sweet spot where interest rates kind of stay elevated um but trading activity actually remains robust and that's you know that's really skipping ahead but that's kind of what really piqued my interest in 2022 when i started looking at it um and now like maybe just going back to the elevator pitch like why ibkr like why do i like this business well i like this business because it has a really clear competitive advantage as a electronic broker because it is the lowest cost provider in the industry. It's the, it not only has the lowest expenses uh, relative to all its competitors, but it also passes along the, the, the lower expenses to its customers. So it charges much lower commissions, but it's not just about commissions. It's also about charging lower uh, interest rates for like margin loans. It offers the most attractive interest rates for cash deposits. So that's all part of I guess the cost of ownership or the benefit of being an account holder. And I think that's a really powerful dynamic. Um, 
it's also it's also a very fast growing business in terms of the number of accounts. So today it has about two million accounts, and that it actually has ten x its accounts over the last ten years. And at two million accounts, it's still a it's still at a very small fraction. I mean, it has a less than ten percent of the account base of of its larger competitors like Schwab and Robin. So I actually think there's a credible path to five xing or ten xing its account base over the next ten years. Um, and there's a lot of reasons why I'm happy to get into that, why I think that's going to happen, or at least it'll move in that direction. You know, and as I mentioned, it benefits from higher interest rates. So I view that as a pretty nice catalyst for earnings. Um, and it benefits from higher interest rates for a few reasons, uh, but primarily the reason it benefits from a high interest rate is because IV Care holds all of its liquidity and all the liquidity of its customers and T-bills. Right. So um, what does that mean? That means that they have very, very low duration and they immediately benefit from higher rates in a way that none of their competitors benefit from higher rates. Uh, if you start to look at the duration of a company like Schwab or a bank like Merrill, um, they have much longer duration which actually gives IBKR a really, really interesting competitive advantage in this landscape. And then the last thing that I'll just say is that it's attractively priced. So on consensus earnings for 2023, uh, I just checked this morning, it's about 14 times EPS. So it's a discount to the broader market. Um, on my own estimates, I'm a, I believe that my, my numbers are a bit, I, I believe that it could actually be higher earnings than the street has. I think it could be as cheap as 10 times this year's EPS. Um, and that's more of like a bull case. And yeah, it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's run, it's really, really well, it's a, it's a really well-run company. The founders still control the business. The, the CEO is really good and also has a lot of skin in the game. And yeah, and I, I basically think if you put it all together, it's a it's an attractively priced, well-run company that has a long-term uh, potential to continue to compound. All right, let's talk a little bit about the mechanics there, because as you kind of mentioned, it, it it does take some work, and there's a lot of moving parts. I think when you first look at it. So, for listeners that don't know, and you you briefly mentioned it there. What are the big revenue drivers? So like mechanically, um, you, you mentioned that they take the customer's liquidity invested in T-bills. That's that's one avenue. Then obviously there's commission trades. Why is like why is the why do they get to invest in shorter duration assets than other exchanges? Right. Um well Okay, so the the business model is it's an electronic brokerage, so it doesn't have physical locations. It's all online, um, and they basically offer. There's basically three types of customers, or three three types of ways they make money, or three different business models within it. So the flagship is what's called IBKR Pro, and that is. They charge a $1 per trade commission and they offer really competitive uh, rates on interest earned and uh, margin margin rates. So 
I believe about roughly 95% of their account base is on the IBPR Pro plan. Okay. Um, they have this other product, which they launched, I believe in 2019, called IBCare Lite. IBCare Lite is a zero uh, commission model where it's, it's, it's basically, they, they made it after Robinhood kind of gained traction. Um, and effectively, if you're a customer of IBCare Lite, you don't pay for, you don't pay for trades that you make in like US listed stocks but you may still pay commissions for like foreign stocks or like some more obscure stuff or like derivatives. Um, but in order to compensate for not charging a commission, IBCare does receive some payment for order flow, but they also charge uh, more aggressive. They don't offer as attractive margin rates or interest rates on those. So a, a lot of the difference between like an IBCare Pro plan and an IBCare Lite plan is that, um, IBCare Lite is, is more monetized with um, like the net interest margin. And then the last thing I'll mention is something called introducing brokers. So what this is, in addition to having its own direct customers that IBPR manages accounts for, IBPR has opened up its platform for third-party brokers to build um, on top of the IBCare platform and manage their own front end. So, for example, if if you if you and I wanted to start a new brokerage company and all we wanted to do was handle like the marketing and customer service, we can just we can get onto the IBKR introducing broker platform. They'll handle all the back end first. They'll handle the the regulatory aspects. They'll handle the trading, the clearing. Um, they, they can even handle the customer service. We don't want to do that um, and. The way they monetize that is the same way they monetize everything else. They charge the same IBKR Pro rates to the introducing brokers. But because IBKR Pro is so much cheaper than the other options in the market, an introducing broker, like a third-party broker, can, can build on top of the IBKR, IBKR Pro platform, mark up, mark up the commissions, mark up the interest rates, and they're still cost competitive. So that's how much cheaper IB. IB is relative to the competitors. And those are the three big um, like drivers. And really, you know, the biggest driver is the IBKR Pro, but the introducing broker platform does represent about 20% of accounts today. And it is an interesting way that IBKR or that interactive brokers is, is growing, especially in international markets. Um, so how does IB how does IB make money? I mean, they basically make money from two ways. It's charging trading commissions and, and the interest, the net interest margin. Maybe I'll start with the trading commission, which, um, which I think is a really interesting topic in this industry. So um, the industry has definitely evolved over the past 10 years or so with um, the zero commission trading model being present. So Basically, all the entire industry went from charging high commissions. So if you remember in like, well, I'm, I'm old enough to remember like Scott Trade in like the early 2000s charging like seven, $7 per trade and that being considered a bargain, right? So there's, this, there's just been this really long arc of like fee pressure on the commission side. That being said, IB has always had 
a $1 commission. It's never really changed. It's always offered basically the cheapest commission that it could. And it, it stuck there. And um, it's never had to adjust it lower. It's never increased uh, that commission. But it's it's just kind of continued to, as, as companies continue to scale and um, add technology, you know, it's, it's, it's levered its, its lower commission rate to drive uh, there's a lot of fixed expenses in this in this business model, so it's lever that that consistent commission rate to drive much higher um, um, pre-tax margins over time. Um, they have in the past charged other fees, so IB used to charge some like minor service fees here and there for various things. If you needed to set up like a special type of account, or if you needed to make a, a certain type of trade. So maybe the commission rates might vary a little, vary a little bit depending on which market or, or um, exactly what you're trying to do with your account. But if you look at, I've done this analysis and over time they've they've pretty much eliminated all the other fees. So a few years ago, they used to charge like some minor service fees here and there. Today, today they don't charge any of those. So they actually have driven more value to to the customer over time. Um, so, and I guess I should talk about the value prop. Like, what is the IV car value prop? Um, the the first the first value prop is obviously what we mentioned. It's it's cheaper to trade, and it and you earn more on your cash deposits. You pay a significantly lower interest rate on margin. You also pay lower rates on derivatives trading and other types of trading, which customers clearly value, right? But in addition to being cheaper, I'd also argue it's better. So what I mean by that is um, they have more asset classes to trade. So um, you can trade FX, you can trade commodities, you can trade OTC, over-the-counter stocks. Um, you can trade in over 90 countries. Um, now, that's actually crazy because uh, at Robinhood, you could only trade, well, last I checked Robinhood, you could only trade US stocks. At Schwab, who is pretty much their largest competitor, and Schwab bills itself as you know an electronic low-cost broker that's trying to kind of fit some aspects of the same customer segments. Schwab is only letting you trade in about 27 countries. So IBKR has 3x the number of countries covered as Schwab. IBKR lets you trade in 30 currencies. You can only trade seven currencies at Schwab. I don't think you can trade uh, a lot of the more esoteric. Well, I know for a fact that you can't trade a lot of the uh, OTC stocks at Schwab because I, I use Schwab uh, professionally as well. Um, effectively, what IBKR is, it's an institutional grade trading platform that is offered to the masses. And it's, it's even more than that because a lot of uh, institutional trading platforms that are offered by large banks like Goldman Sachs and Bank of America, they don't have, in a lot of cases, they don't have the same coverage as IB. Um, so there's a lot of things that you can trade at IB that you can't trade even on like at Goldman Sachs. So there's a lot of professional hedge funds and professional traders that actually prefer IB for various reasons. 
IVKR also provides a lot of really great tools that are value add. So they have all these cool trading algorithms out of the box. So if you want to run like a VWAP algorithm or some other kind of more sophisticated algorithm, you could do that with IV. You're not going to be able to do that with most other kind of retail trading platforms. They have an institutional grade API. So if you want to stand up an algorithmic trading, like a fully systematic trading solution, you could do that with IVKR. You can't really do that with a lot of other funds. I've spoken to quant funds who really like uh, institutional quant funds who use IVKR's API, and they say it's much better than the APIs that are offered by some of their other front brokers. So IVKR has a very, very powerful platform. So it's not only cheaper, but I'd say it's also better, right? Um, I'll stop there, but I can maybe talk about some other things I, I think are really cool about the platform too. No, I think that I think that covers a lot of it. Um, I guess just the only other spot where I think listeners would maybe not understand would be on the net interest margin. Could you maybe go into that a little bit more and just talk about why? Because um, you mentioned that they are able to invest the the customer liquidity in short duration assets, which is unique. What what kind of allows them to do that versus, or is, or is it just a choice? Or are they just it's choosing? Just a choice. Yeah, it's oh, just okay. a choice. and the, and the, and it's just a basic spread, like at a bank, right? Yeah, it, yeah. exactly. So right. So what is a, a net interest margin? Net interest margin is effectively it, it, it's the classic you know business model of most financial institutions. You you charge a higher interest rate than you're paying on your liabilities, right? Your customers are paying you a higher rate, like your customers pay you five, and then you pay your, your creditors two, right? So then you can lock in a 3% net interest margin on, right? That, that's a, it's as simple as that. So um, this is kind of, this is where it gets kind of interesting because I think here doesn't really have too many pure play competitors. If you really look at the landscape, it's changed a lot over the years. There's been a lot of consolidation. So I would I would have argued that TD Ameritrade would have been the best comparable company to, to IBKR, but TD was actually acquired by Schwab. Schwab isn't actually Schwab is probably the best comp to IBKR today, but there are some key differences, namely that Schwab is also a bank. So Schwab has a lot of um, first of all, it has a different regulatory status. But it also has a lot uh, has a loan has a loan portfolio, right? Because Schwab is making loans to businesses. They take banking deposits. Uh, they have they have they have a very different capital structure if you look at it. So there actually are pretty good reasons why IBKR's um, balance sheet and net interest margin profile differs from who you would view as its competitors. And then obviously, if you're looking at like a Merrill Lynch um, or, um, you know, whatever these other, like an E-Trade, which is owned by Morgan Stanley. Um, they're, they're, they're within larger uh, financial institutions that do have more complicated balance sheets, right? So IBKR, yes, it's a choice, but it's also maybe a structural advantage. So, IBKR has zero corporate debt, so they have no liabilities, right? So they don't, they, they have full flexibility on how much risk they want to take with their cash. 
it just so happens that the company itself is very, very conservative. They don't want to take credit risk. You know, they'll say this, they'll say this often on um, conference calls. They don't want to take credit risk. They don't want to take duration risk. And I understand it, it you know, I understand why they don't want to take um, corporate credit risk, like that's definitely a choice. But the reason why they don't want to take duration risk, duration risk meaning that instead of holding a three-month uh, T-bill, you know, you could you could own like a 10-year or a 30-year bond that theoretically should pay you a higher rate of interest. But then when the market struck when the interest rate structure changes, um, you're not going to be able to adjust to that as quickly. So what why does IBKR choose to hold short duration T-bills so that they can more quickly adjust their the amount of interest they can pay to their clients faster. So, you know, kind of skipping ahead of it, but I think a reason why, I think one of the reasons why IBKR is uh, going to take market share in the cycle is because in a high inflation environment, um, the end customer cares a lot more about how much interest they're earning on their accounts. And, you know, if you look at the interest rates that IB is uh, lend is is offering on its cash, it's competitive with high interest banks like uh, Ally and Marcus. It's it's right there, net toe to toe, right? So you could you could argue that just putting your your cash in IB you, and not even trading is already a win if you're if you're a retail depositor. Um, so I think that like there's there's a practical reason why they do that because they always want to have the best rates and I think if rates start to fall they you know there is that they could make the decision to extend duration although I think they really like to have the flexibility to to control pricing right um, so maybe to take a counter example Schwab has has a has a longer duration. If you look at Schwab's portfolio, they own some mortgage-backed securities that, that give them a higher yield, right? So uh, Schwab's, Schwab's uh, portfolio is earning them a higher yield. It's earning them like five, six, seven percent. But if rates now that we're in a in a higher rate cycle, um, you know those same things that Schwab is investing in, um, they they could actually be earning a higher yield if they bought them today, right? So Schwab has less flexibility. And if you actually look at the rate that IB is giving out and compare it to Schwab, it's much more attractive. It's because structurally IBPR has more flexibility to offer more attractive rate than Schwab, which has to kind of more slowly, more gradually adjust to the changing rate environment um, because it does have, it's, it's kind of, it's, it does, if, if you look at the, the net interest margin equation, it's two parts, you know, uh, one part of Schwab's equation is more locked in so it takes longer for them to adjust to the change in the market all right that's a great overview of the pitch and how the business works but there's going to be some smaller things we want to hit that i think your listeners might be interested in one unique thing about ibkr is and i don't have the exact numbers in front of me but the founder and i think i'm pronouncing this right Petterfi. is it Petterfi? you might know Petterfi. Yep. Petterfi. he owns the majority of the shares outstanding right now i guess 
the question I have is what enabled this to happen? Did he already have a lot of wealth before starting IBKR? And is there any relevant history to him and the company that kind of that you didn't already hit on that these you know listeners should understand for this business? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I'll set the context. Um, Thomas Pederfee, the founder, and he's currently the chairman. Um, he's a Hungarian immigrant. He came to the U.S. in the '70s. With his background is he was a, a computer programmer, so he's an he has an engineering education, which very much actually is reflected on the culture of IB and like how the company operates. He, I think, in the '70s, he bought um, a seat on an exchange, and he just became a, a really successful trader in his own right. In the '80s, he set up the predecessor company to IBKR, which which was effectively an electronic market maker. So, you know, using his uh, ability, his his uh, sophisticated ability to trade, and then combining that with his ability to program, he created one of the first. Um, you know, electronic market makers in the 80s. And he, I believe his firm was the largest electronic market maker of derivatives in the US in the 80s and early 90s. And then eventually, and he basically built um, a technology infrastructure around that. And he, he realized in the early 90s that there was a lot of synergies between market making and, and offering electronic brokerage. He saw the opportunity in, in brokerage. And I believe they launched, IBPR launched its brokerage operation in the early 90s, around 93 or 94. And it was really small, right? So, and they rebranded the company, I believe, to attract the brokers when they launched that electronic brokerage company. So when he launched the company, he owned 100% of it, right? And because he was already wealthy and his and the market making was effectively making a, a ton of money for the company, he really didn't need to raise money for the business. So when he took the company public, it was really about liquidity, right? So he IPO'd a small piece of it. And he's effectively, he's just been, he's actually been selling just a little bit every year. And he he's a very consistent seller. Um I think he even sells a little bit every day. It's just to him, it's just a, it's programmatic. He just sells a little bit every day, um, and so um, one of the reasons why the stock screams really weird is because you could the share count has gone up a lot over time, and it's purely a function of the fact that Petrofi has been selling his shares a little bit every year, right? So it's it's not because Ivy hasn't been issuing a bunch of stock. And actually, as the share count goes up, the percentage that's owned by the public also goes up. So nothing, it hasn't really been a bad thing for shareholders. And actually it's been a good thing because it's provided more liquidity to the stock over time, but he still owns about 75% of it. And over time, I mean, he's in his eighties now, over time, that's gonna to continue to float lower. I, he has a son who's on the board who will probably inherit um, whatever shares Pedophy doesn't sell in the public market but that's kind of that's kind of how um how we got here with with the public float dynamic and the corporate ownership i guess i do want to hit on one thing which is pretty important which is that legacy of being an electronic broker and you know pedophy being an engineer the company has always 
maintained a really, really heavy investment in technology. And also because of its legacy as being a very sophisticated market maker, the company has a very, very um, sophisticated knowledge of the market structure of exchanges and how they work. And these are all things that have really driven IBKR's low cost advantage over time because the company uh, philosophically, they've always wanted to invest in technology before they just hire more people. They've always opted for automation as opposed to inefficiency. And that's really just the culture of the company. And the person that Pedrofi hired to be his, his successor in 2019, Milan Gallic, worked with Pedrofi in the 90s and also started off as a programmer. Um, and if you look at, you know, if, if you want to be successful at IB, uh, it seems like the culture is they promote the engineers, they promote the product people, and they're obsessed with technology. And if you think about what Interactive Brokers is at the end of the day, it is kind of an e-commerce company, right? Because offering offering trading and connecting to exchanges all around the world is largely a technology problem, right? And it's a technology problem that you, you know, you set the rules, you set the parameters based on regulatory rules, you set the parameters based on different exchanges. And it's it's a technology problem. And that's a very, very different founding story to its competitors. I mean, I, I think E-Trade aside, most of its competitors, if you look at one of the things that I found really, really fascinating about IBKR is if you look at the revenue per employee at IB and you compare that to any of its competitors, it's off the charts. IB is just so much more efficient. And that's because of like its legacy and its founding story. Let's kind of talk through, uh, I guess, the evolution since you become a shareholder. So you sent us your research note in September. Uh, at the time, I believe you had a cost basis, I think, around like 58. Um, today, the stocks trades around 75. So, so far, it's, it's, it's done well. What's kind of how how has the story evolved? What's changed since you wrote your thesis? And then what's kind of the state of the business today? Yeah. Um, I mean, I, I established my position last summer and I quickly made it one of my largest positions. And I just, due to my own portfolio construction rules and, you know, I don't really want to get too much into that, but like, I haven't really traded it much since. I have a view, I have a long-term view of the stock, which is, I, I think that over the long-term, it's going to compound. Um, and I have a short-term view of the stock, which is that the Fed hiking interest rates has been a net positive for EPS growth, um, just because of the net interest margin dynamic. Um, and um, I'd say my views haven't really changed that much. Since I bought it last summer, the stock has gone up a bit. So that's been nice. Um, the valuation has gone up a little bit, but I think it's still very attractive, which is I haven't, I don't think, I don't think this is the time for me to be selling it yet. Um, but um, yeah, I mean, effectively, so far, every like it's, and it's been a short time period. I mean, we're talking, it's January 2023. I think I started buying IBKR maybe June of 2022. I mean, it's been less than a year. Um, 
And so far, everything is as expected. Interest rates have gone up. IB has seen their their revenue from interest from interest income go up a lot. Um, maybe the only thing that's been a little disappointing is that the markets have not really recovered. Uh, so you know, if you think about if you think about like what drives um, the business, um, part of what drives the business is the underlying clients, like how much equity they have. Uh, so, and IBKR reports this. So it's not just the number of it's not just the number of accounts, but it's also how much invested in aggregate the accounts have. So, as a result of a down market, their client equity is also down, right? And why why does that matter? It matters because um, well, it matters for a few reasons, but. Most mechanically, as it relates to earnings power, if you think about it, the larger your equity base is, the larger your ability to, uh, the larger the ability to offer like loans is, like margin loans and other products. So if, you know, IBKR also reports its its margin loans outstanding, which is obviously one of the uh, drivers of its interest income. And this margin loans are down. I mean, that shouldn't be surprisingly. That shouldn't be surprising because interest rates are up. But in addition to interest rates being up, client equity is down. So some people may have been forced to close out some of those loans. So, um, and, and I think that's very well understood by the market. I think that's more or less been priced in, um, which is why, you know, the stock's cheap. I think the market pretty much understood that uh, in all things being equal, higher equity values uh, correlate to to better uh, earnings performance by IV. But, you know, part of my thesis is that over the long run, over the long run, uh, the equity markets will come back and that'll be supportive of earnings growth. Um, I'd say I've been, I've, I'm, so that's been something that's been a little disappointing is just that um, the equity value of the underlying account holders hasn't, uh, has has actually been hit larger than I would have maybe initially modeled. Um, although it's kind of it's not due to IBKR per se; it's just due to the more macroeconomic situation. Um, the account growth has definitely slowed, right? So entering twenty twenty two, I believe their their accounts are growing at like a thirty five percent year over year rate. Exiting 2022, we got the numbers for December. The growth rate was about 25% year over year. So still very fast account growth, but it has it has decelerated quite a bit. And you know, if we continue to have an equity market or I'd say financial markets that are not very conducive to investors, I would expect investor uh, appetite to open accounts to to not increase, uh, you know, I would probably expect continued deceleration of that. Um, that being said, what I hope for this year and what we will have to wait and see is, okay, clients have already taken the hit in their equity in their equity value, right? So one of the reasons why I think this is a really good business model is that it's not just about opening new accounts. It's about existing clients adding to their existing accounts over time. 
a lot of people have their 401ks or their Roths or their IRAs or just their trading accounts at IB. And most people add to their investments over time. So I, I really like, I think about, I think about a mental model here when I think about some of the financial financials that I own is that I really think that there's a lot of similarities between some of the financials I own and like software companies, right? And like a framework that is really common in software is like land and expand and like net revenue retention. Like what's your net revenue retention growth? And if it's, you know, if, if it's over a hundred percent, that means your existing customers are spending more money and they're more than offsetting uh, churn, right? So over time in, in a, in a brokerage account and also in a bank account in general, you know, you should expect a positive net revenue retention rate. So even if we have kind of a flat to maybe even slightly down market, um, my expectation is for the underlying customer equity to at the very least be stable and more optimistically to grow and to outpace the growth of, uh, you know, market appreciation. Right, which which I really like, um, and there is another dynamic here, and I'm kind of on a, I'm kind of rambling, but I think this is actually a really interesting uh, phenomenon, which is that if you look at um, customer cash, like in general, like where do people hold their cash? Right, a lot of people hold their cash just sitting in bank accounts that earn zero percent. Right. Now that we have high inflation and high interest rates, we've actually already started to see a shift of people just emptying out their zero interest rate bank, bank accounts and piling into high interest savings accounts, but also brokerage accounts. So I think that there is a, and I think this, this will, we'll continue to see this in 2023, but I think inflows into brokerage, I believe, and I think this is supported by data, that money is moving from traditional banks into online banks that offer better interest rates and brokerage accounts where they can park it in money market funds that are also yielding attractive rates. So that's actually one of the things that is supportive of, in my opinion, the near-term uh, earnings power and revenue growth. Um, I forgot the initial question, but hopefully I answered it. No, it definitely covers it. Uh, very comprehensive. One little follow-up I think I have for maybe why you know you're saying that the business is going to be in a much better place than it was, say, a decade before, just earnings-wise, and obviously they're going to grow their account base. But it's one of the ideas here that we may be done, and this is obviously a very, very tough question to answer. We may be done with zero interest rates from the Fed for a while. And that even if equity market or excuse me, interest rates don't stay at four or five percent, they're not going to go back down to zero percent. And if say they're at two, three percent, something like that, um, and the equity markets recover, you could actually be in a much better spot than when, say, there was zero interest rates and we we're in that bubble period where the business can earn that net interest margin and still get those better commissions and have the higher, I'll call it AUM, but just total the dollar, the dollar amount they have under management. 100%. Okay. So, I think this is something I talked about in my memo at length, and it could get a little, it might get a little bit complicated, but I'm going to try to explain it, uh, how I think about this. So 
there's a couple of ways to think about IBPR if you're thinking about it, if you're trying to frame the business, right? Because I, I think one one of the ways that I frame the business is you have a durable uh, brokerage business that has long-term ability to grow its account base and grow its, um, basically its commission earnings and all the earnings that are associated with that, an online brokerage. However, um, what, like the stock is so cheap, you know, at a low double digit earnings multiple, the stock is so cheap that I would argue that you kind of have a free call option on interest rates being higher than people expect. Because effectively, what the market is is saying with the current um, current earnings multiple attached to IB is the market basically assumes that rates are going to go back down to zero, and that um, you know if if you if you kind of just if you if you just I guess maybe another way to think about this is if you adjust IB's earnings today for what its earnings would be in a zero interest rate environment then IB's evaluation multiple would probably be closer to 20 times, right? If you basically just took away all the incremental interest income that they earned that they earned last year or that they're expected to earn this year, you're going to get closer to like, you know, a high teens, you know, 20-ish type earnings multiple, which is probably a fair multiple for, you know, a business that is growing its account base at a double-digit rate that is attractive, right? So, but then there's this question of, well, okay, but that logically led me to think, okay, well, what if rates don't just go to zero? Or what if they go to zero, but it takes a couple of years to get to zero? Or what if they bottom at 2% or 3%? Well, then I would argue that the current frame, the current valuation framework that IB has, that the market has on IB is too cheap because it's not appropriately valuing, you know, the call option that you have on higher rates. Right. So hopefully that makes sense. And maybe I'll just more mechanically explain why I think that's interesting. So in a zero interest rate environment, the net interest margin that IBPR has generated has been about somewhere between one to one and a half percent. Right. In a high interest rate environment. So in a 2007 or a 2019, well, in 2019, IBPR, we didn't have high interest rates. And IBKR's net interest margin went from like 1% to like 1.8%. So it definitely went up, right? And I, I don't quite remember how high interest rates got in 2018. I think they got up to like the low 2% range. So we're already higher than we were in 2019. So, and the Fed is projecting, and I think interest rate expectations are that the Federal Reserve will set interest rates somewhere between 4 and 5% in 2023. And then they'll peak there and maybe they'll start to decline from there or maybe they'll just stay there. So I think there's a very reasonable path. And in my modeling, I believe that their IB's net interest margin, which is already about what it was in 2019, it's already about 2%. I think you could see IBK's net interest margin go to 2.5 to, to 3 at a high end, 3%. So the difference in EPS for IBKR between a 2.5% net interest margin and like a one and a half net interest margin is like two and a half dollars at EPS. So I think last year, IBCare only earned like $3 at EPS, right? So you're talking about um, more than 50%, you know, uh, EPS growth 
just on the difference in net interest margin. And of course, net interest income, it just flo- it's 100% goes to the bottom line, right? So now, if you start to think about the reverse of that, let's say we're at, I, 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 let, you know, let's say we're at a 2.5% net interest rate margin and market interest rates fall. Let's say the Fed lowers them to 2% because, you know, there's a scenario where um, inflation is still somewhat persistent, but it's cool. And maybe the Fed, and maybe we start to get high, higher unemployment. So the Fed might turn some dials and lower interest rates a little bit to kind of like satisfy its dual mandate. Um, if, if we have, if we have 2% interest rates, I think there's net interest margin is not going back to, to one, right? It'll probably still be around 2%, right? So structurally, IBKR is going to be generating a higher margin and a higher return on equity at a 2% net interest margin than it, than it was at a 1% interest, uh, net interest margin. Um, and one of the really, another really interesting thing about IBKR is if you actually look over time, um, cause we've had a really long period of zero interest rates. IBKR has somehow managed to squeeze a little bit more juice out of NIM over time. So if you look at the, the beginning of zero interest rates, the NIM that IBKR was generating was actually a little bit lower than the NIM IBKR was generating at the end of the is there an interest rate period? Um, and I believe there's a few reasons for that. I believe that IBKR has gotten a lot more sophisticated about securities lending. I believe that IBKR has found some efficiencies in, in, in the way that it um, manages its liabilities as well. Um, there's a lot of things that it does on the tech side that can squeeze a little bit more juice out of the NIM. So I would even argue that if we go back to a zero interest rate environment, the floor on that interest margin will probably be higher than it was in like 2017 and 2018. Um, so I, that's part of what leads me to believe that the market, which is relying on basically the market is, is putting, is, is, is laying, is overlaying a 2016, 2018 framework for IBKR today. But I actually think laying that framework over IBKR today is actually undervaluing structurally undervaluing the unit economics that I believe IBCare will generate in various scenarios of uh, interest rates. But I guess at the core, right, and what the reason why I, I'm bullish on IBCR is I believe that even at a zero interest rate, even if even if rates go back to zero, I think IBCR is, is pretty attractively priced. I believe you're basically getting the core uh, brokerage franchise for fair value, maybe a slight discount to, to what it would be. Remember, IBCare used to trade for like 25, 30 times EPS in you know, 2017, 2018. Um, and I believe you can currently get that even if you assume no value to interest, to incremental interest earnings at like a high teens, like low 20s multiple, and still growing very fast. Um, but then I think you have a lot of upside to the extent that interest rates surprise to the upside. All right. We talked a lot about the maybe the dynamics over the next year or two, but I think you know you mentioned before that part of your thesis is the long term growth in accounts and basically the long term growth in the assets that are you know managed or not managed. I use the term AUM, but I think listeners know what I mean. The assets that are at IBKR. We've seen, and you mentioned this as well, 
the stagnation over 2022, late 2022 of account growth. And I think that makes sense with the bear market. Where, if they're going to 5X their account base over the next 10 years, where, where is that going to come from? Yeah, absolutely. So um, let, let's just start with the existing addressable market, right? So um, today, IBPR has about 2 million accounts, right? Now look at who its competitors are. Schwab has over 30 million accounts. Robinhood has over 20 million accounts. E-Trade has over 20 million accounts. E-Toro has more, I think, it, I, I don't know the number, but it has more accounts than IB, I believe. Or maybe it has millions of accounts, right? So uh, like within the existing landscape, IBPR can take share. And who is it competing against? Robinhood could be out of business. <laughs> IBCare has a better value prop than Schwab. IBCare has a better value prop than pretty much all the competitors, depending on what the customers need, right? Um, if, if customers care more about earning high, high rates on their cash deposits and trading more markets and saving money on their trades, um, they may consider IBCR. So I think market share is one thing. Um, however, the market is growing. The total addressable market is growing. If you look at all of its competitors, I think Schwab has grown its account base at roughly a 5% rate over the long term. And that's a fairly mature business, right? Given that it already has something like 34, 35 million accounts. Um, IBCR has, has a couple of really interesting niches, but the probably the most interesting niche is the XUS niche. So 50% of IB's accounts are in North America, uh, one third of their accounts are in Asia, and about 20% of their accounts are in Europe. Um, it's a very international business and the international side is growing much faster than the US side. And IBKR uniquely uh, has the ability to open accounts in over 200 countries, okay? And in these 200 countries, it it's pretty much offering the best value prop as an electronic broker relative to all the other competitors in those local markets. Now, the US market is a very competitive market and IB is already the leader in the US and it's a very competitive market, right? If you start looking at really small countries like Romania or Indonesia or um, Colombia, where I believe IB offers accounts in all those markets, and you look at who they're competing against. In a lot of those countries, you don't have these large fintech players. You don't have an eToro or a Schwab. You have like a traditional bank that's still offering full, like, full fee accounts with very limited access to international markets, right? So if you think IB is a good value prop in, in North America or in Western Europe, it completely smokes the value prop in like Eastern Europe, Southeast Asia, parts of Africa. I mean, they're in 200, I think 215 countries last I checked. They're basically everywhere where they can be. And obviously they're not operating in markets that are blacklisted because they actually, you know, compliance is really important. But, um, and I've done a lot of work on the compliance side, which we could talk about. But um, so they're getting a lot of new accounts in all these like little niche countries where they're kind of dumb. And I've, I've done a lot, I've done calls. I've done calls with uh, customers and competitors in, in various 
uh, developing markets and have confirmed that IB is very strong competitor. Now, there's another reason why IB is a strong competitor in these local markets, because if you think about, um, if you actually ask people in these different countries what stocks they want to invest in, it's really interesting what they'll say. People in Colombia and in Indonesia, they want to own Tesla, they want to own Apple, they want to own Samsung. They don't necessarily only want to own the local companies. They want to own the global leadership companies. Um, the, these are like universal, universally desirable securities, right? And if you think about comparing, like let's say I, IBKR to like a local bank in Colombia, the local bank or the local brokerage in Colombia doesn't have the same ability to trade in North America or in Asia as IB. So in a lot of cases, there is, if, if you want to own Tesla, and I've, I've had this conversation with local traders in different countries, the only way to buy Tesla in some countries is to open an account at IBKR, right? And in addition to that, IBKR is offering the most attractive Forex rates. So if you want to like, if you're in, if you're in one of these countries and you want to own something in US dollar or in Euro, it's a lot cheaper to do it um, with IBKR. Um, so I think that's, um, I think that is, um, you know, the biggest tailwind there, right? Because if you think about like the long arc of like where we're going is like, you're seeing increased financialization of the world. There's a growing number of publicly traded companies in developing countries. There's a growing interest in people wanting to invest. There's a, you know, a growing middle-class globally that needs to invest and, you know, needs to save for retirement. So IBKR is writing a lot of these trends and they're uniquely doing it. Okay. Last question. And this is the the one we try to always end with, which is the pre-mortem. You mentioned this is kind of heads I win, tails I don't lose scenario. And, and when you look at the sort of the whatever happens to interest rates, you could see how that would play out is there's benefits both ways. What would be, is there any tails I I lose scenario? Is there anything that would cause this to be an underperforming investment? Yeah, hundred um, percent. And you know, we glossed over a lot of risk, and I could quickly hit what I think are the key risk after I answer this question. But I think what you would have to believe to lose money on IBKR is that both like interest rates will fall, and trading activity won't recover. So if interest rates decline, and and people still hate the financial markets, if interest rates go back to zero and stocks don't recover and therefore investor desire to own, to invest in stocks and bonds don't recover, then uh, hard, hard to see that being good for IBQR, right? But I think the Goldilocks is that interest rates don't go to zero. Maybe the interest rates stay where they are, or maybe come down a little bit, maybe they go down to like two or 3%. So you get a little bit of a benefit on like the valuation of financial assets, but IBQR still retains the vast majority of its economics on that interest margin. So, you know, those are the two key dynamics, right? If 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 both of those things, you know, if if investor interest in the market and interest rates fall, then yeah, IBKR is gonna report pretty horrendous uh, numbers. Now, I think I think both like I think the probability of both of those things occurring is pretty low. I think 
there could be a reasonable probability on one or other of those things happening. Like we could, I, I think we could see either an environment where interest rates stay high or stay where they are now and the markets kind of stay in like, let's call it a, a trading range. You don't appreciate very much. I think IBKR, you know, it's currently, it'll probably retain roughly its current earnings power. And I think it's attractive here and it's printing money and, you know, they could return capital to shareholders. Right. Um, and I, I think if, if rates fall and, and uh, the market recovers, who knows, maybe we get a repeat of 2020, 2021 again, or, you know, commission volumes go crazy. I, I wouldn't bank on that, but I, you know, I, I would certainly expect an increased appetite for, for, for investing. And obviously if rates go to zero, that's going to have valuation support on IBKR's multiple itself. Right. So it's a little bit of a, of a, there's a double impact there. So maybe I should quickly hit on like what I think the key risks are of IBKR. Maybe these are the things that are keeping other people up at night. I think the first thing, and I've, I think I've kind of addressed this is that a lot of people view IBKR as like a COVID beneficiary, a COVID beneficiary, because they saw their account growth kind of soar during 2020, 2021, like account growth really accelerated. And in addition to account growth accelerating, you saw trading activity per account go up. Um, you know, we're a couple of years removed from COVID now. And I would argue that 25% account growth in 2022, well, we exited 2022 with 25% account growth. Account growth was actually higher than 25%. It was closer to 30% during uh, the entirety of 2022. But I would argue that exiting at above 20% account growth suggests that there's probably more than just a COVID beneficiary story here. Um, and for all the other things that we talked about on this call, the long-term tellers. Um, you know, interest rates going back to zero, but I think we've covered that. Corporate governance and succession risk, I think it's worth mentioning this. So a lot of people say, okay, cutter fee is 80. What's going to happen when he's no longer with us? Uh, and I think there are a lot of people who speculate that IBCAR may be it may be sold um, or, you know, there's a question, will the Sun take over? The Sun doesn't really have a lot of operating experience as more of a board member. But actually, I think IBCare already solved the succession question because the CEO, Milan, was appointed in 2019 and he's basically a carbon copy of Pedersen. <laughs> he's like a mini Pedersen. He's younger. He's, uh, I think, in his 50s. And um, he thinks about the business and very similar life is very similar training. This is also his life's work. He has a majority of his own personal net worth tied up in the company stock as well. Um, I've done a lot of calls with like former employees of the company, and I don't think anything's going to change if Pedophile leaves. I'll just put it that way. Um, and my impression of the internal corporate culture at IB and it's, it's a very mission-driven company. People, people are very efficient. They work really hard and they generally get a lot of satisfaction out of it. I, I have a very positive impression of what it's like to work at Ivy based on my multiple calls with former employees. Um, okay, there's a couple of more like left tail risks that I think are worth mentioning. Some people view IB as like being vulnerable to a financial crisis. So what, what I mean by that is like, okay, well, 
what happens if we just get, what happens if all their clients blow up? Like if there's like a 2008 systemic crisis or, you know, some other kind of systemic crisis, IB does have a liability. They do have some counterparty risk to their customers. So if all their client accounts just like blow up for whatever reason, um, there, there would be some liability. So the first thing I would say is that, well, IB has been around doing electronic brokerage for 30 years, right? So they've lived through the SNL crisis in the, in the 90s. They lived through the Asian financial crisis. They lived through the dot-com blow-up. They lived through the 2008 crisis. They lived through the 2020 crisis. They've never had uh, a real charge-off. The largest charge-off that IB had was actually in 2020 when the price of WTI went negative. IBCare incurred a $100 million uh, charge-off because um, their software didn't allow customers to close their positions with a negative oil price. They didn't, I guess, whoever designed the IBCare software didn't think that that would be possible. So um, that, was, that was the largest incident that IB's had, and that was a $100 million hit to IB. IBKR has $10 billion of equity uh, on their balance sheet. Uh, so the largest that they've ever been hit by was like, a, like would have hit their equity by 1%. I think that they're very conservatively capitalized. And as I mentioned, they have no corporate debt. So I do think that it is worth thinking about, okay, what could really go wrong systemically? Like where is IB vulnerable? But if you, you know, the best way to analyze that is, you know, you have 30 year track record. And then obviously as a private market maker for even for another 20 years before that, I think they know how, like this company has is, is operated very, very conservatively. And uh, it's not a situation where like you're dealing with a company that pushes its balance sheet or its risk constraints to the, to the limit. I actually think it's the opposite. And then I guess the last risk factor that I'll mention that I think about, and this is probably the one that I think about the most, is there is some regulatory risk involved in opening accounts in over 200 countries, right? Namely, there's anti-money laundering risk, and they have to be really, really careful about who, who, who they open accounts for and the information they have on customers. So um, needless to say, opening an account in the US is lower risk than opening an account in, let's say, Indonesia. And there's a couple of reasons why. The IDs that people have in Indonesia, the, the system for identifying people and the kind of information that you can get from people is not as robust in Indonesia as it is in the US, right? Just to, 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 to speak to that. So IB has invested quite a lot in compliance and they've significantly ramped up their compliance investment in the last couple of years. They employ local country experts that handle compliance for every single country that they operate in. And they have had a, a couple of minor compliance issues in the past, but um, I believe this is a country that, I believe this is a company that takes compliance and kind of left tailers very seriously. And, and I am, and, and I, I, I have a, a high degree of confidence that they're, they're handling these kinds of risks well, but it is, it is a situation where you know it wouldn't be, it is it is possible for them to make a compliance mistake in one of these other countries. I guess the only thing I would say to that is the client base here is very diversified. 
So let's say, let's say, um, let's say they have an issue in Indonesia, not to pick on Indonesia, but let's just say they have an issue in Thailand. Uh, okay. If they have a really, really bad issue, maybe they just close that country down, right? But because their account base is so diversified, closing down access to one country isn't really going to be that material. You know, the, the, the countries that would be material would be like North America and Western Europe to IV Care's financials. But a lot of like the long tail where you really have that higher compliance risk, I think it's pretty well diversified. Makes sense. Okay. I think that's all the questions we have. Brett, do you have any more? He's, he's shaking his head. Okay. So I guess uh, closing out, where can, uh, I, th- I think you've probably said this on shows before, but where can people follow you? I think your uh, research note on IBKR is up on your website as well, correct? It is. Um, so if, if you want to look me up, it, you can just Google my name, Luis V. Sanchez. The V is very important. And my website is lvsadvisory.com. And if you go to my communications page, I have a version of my IBKR note there. Perfect. Perfect. Okay. Um, that's going to do it. I want to throw a disclosure on this. Brett and I are not financial advisors. Anything we say or discuss here on Chit Chat Money is not formal advice or recommendation. We are, however, general partners at Arch Capital, so clients may have positions in the securities discussed in this podcast. Louise also mentioned it as well. Uh, d- do your own research. This isn't financial advice on his part. Um, but that is going to do it. Thank you all for listening. Thank you again, Louise, for coming on the show, and we'll see you all next time. Okay, I am welcomed by the founder of our exclusive sponsor, Stratosphere.io, uh, Braden Dennis. Braden, welcome. I wanted to basically give listeners that are interested in Stratosphere more context around what the platform is. So let's start there. What is Stratosphere? And then why did you decide to start it? Yeah. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it. And I'm glad to be sponsoring the podcast as, as a listener myself. I like the deep dives. I like the different guests, the different perspectives on uh, some interesting companies. So I think it's a good concept for a podcast, which is kind of what led me down to making Stratosphere in the first place, which was I was making content online and frustrated with the tools that were available to me. So I started building uh, a very scrappy version of the product just for free, just to figure out like, how can I overlay 10 years of financial side by side you know, up to 35 years we have now? And how can I actually build out a proper database of, of company KPIs that are not just revenue, but like, if you're looking at like Costco, like how many warehouses do they have? How many paid members are, are in like our Costco members? Or, you know, if I want to do a comp against like the streaming, like how many Netflix subs versus uh, HBO plus discovery plus, no Disney plus, like how do I build out proper comps of those? Because those are the metrics that actually move the business. Those are the ones that actually move the needle more than any like gap financial metric you'll find. And so it started off as just purely a passion project. And I figured let's just make the leap into entrepreneurship and uh, see where it goes. And, you know, it brought, brought us here today. Yeah. And like you mentioned, it, it is the stuff that you can't find anywhere else, at least not in a, I mean, you could find it page by page and on their financials. Exactly. But. You can go through 35 uh, 
PDF filings and find it. Be, be my guest. And, and, that, and that's basically what we did for a long time. So what do, I guess, maybe describe the pricing model so people know, sure. but uh, you're going to say it, it, there's there's a free platform. What do free users get? Yeah, good good thing. Because our, our mission was to always build a free platform. And, and so we really kept true to our mission and give like an amazing platform for free, which gives you 10 years of financial statements on 40,000 global securities. So we don't list you just to US securities, it's on global stocks. We give you a watch list, the screener, comparisons on competitors, fundamental charting up to 10 years, filings, transcripts. You can look at the press releases right inside the app news, ETFs, funds, super investors, hedge fund letters, investor holdings, and financial calendars. Those are all the features you'll get on uh, on the free tier. Now, if on, on the, the middle tier, the personal tier, you're going to unlock up to 35 years of financials and just kind of like nice to have, like quality of life, like notifications being built in, um, price targets for building models, uh, like business owner mode where you can hide prices, like kind of like just that next level for, for individual investors who want to level up. And then the the top tier is for like investment teams and professionals who want to unlock that KPI data and request KPI coverage as well. Like a firm will be like, here, we want these 10 names in our coverage and in your coverage. And then you'll have basically our, our entire universe that we're looking at, which is great, right? Because like earnings season comes around and we have it updated within 15 minutes when Netflix comes out with their net subscriber ads, like it's right there in one place, uh, especially easy to handle around the, the peak of earnings season. That that matters a lot for these people. And so we have a, a premium tier for that as well. That's the, that's the three plans that are available today. And now... A perfect time to shameless plug our code. If you use CCM, you get 15% off any of the paid plans. But I think that covers it pretty well. Uh, if you're interested, please go ahead and check out stratosphere.io. We'll we'll have a link in the uh, description as well. But uh, thank you, Braden, for joining us. Ryan, keep it up. I really like what you and Brad are doing and uh, I'll be listening along.